Today we're going to take a break from Exodus. I know, I'm sorry. You know, you're loving it. I am too. But we're going to take a break from Exodus. And we're going to be doing an overview of an entire book of the Bible. How about that? The book of Lamentations. So I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me to Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 to 33. Young disciples, you need to write down that passage. You might need some help spelling Lamentations. Your parents might need help with that too. That's okay, it'll be on the screen a whole lot. You can find that on page 688 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. The title of today's sermon is, Therefore I Have Hope. And here is the one application that I want to make in three parts. It is lament. Church, I want to call you to lament. As the God-given way of one, processing your emotion, two, voicing your confusion, and three, protesting your pain. Now you may be like, life is kind of good for me right now. This is going to be a little bit depressing today. Well, if this is not relevant to your season of life, it will be at some point. And I will say to you on behalf of the pastors that over the past six months to one year, we have experienced so much oppression from the enemy in tangible ways in the life of our church that this is very relevant to us. And I think it's very relevant to us in this season of Antioch Church. So, in the timeliness of God's word, I would invite you to stand with me, to honor the reading of it, and if you're not able to stand, please stand with us in your hearts. Again, today's passage is Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 to 33. Church, hear the word of the Lord. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's say this together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So I think I've told this story to you all before, and I'm sorry, young disciples, that I'm going to be giving you ideas here. Thankfully, there are no pine trees near our building. But when I was growing up in church, I learned this real quick. Parents be talking, don't they? After church, it's time to go. You've already been there for two hours. Parents, what? Parents be talking for a long time, fellowshipping, um, hanging around. And so while me and my friends were waiting for our parents to finally come out of the church, we got this idea that we would take pine cones and put them in people's tailpipes. 
And so I don't know if, if you know what will happen if you put a pine cone in someone's exhaust pipe. Our thought was we would do it, we would go hide, and then as those people drove away, we would listen for the epic burst of the pine cone shooting out of the exhaust pipe. But that's not really what happens when you do this. There are a few options. One is the engine will stop running because it needs outlet for that air and those things, those fumes to come out. If it can't come out, the engine will shut down. Or if the pine cone gets far enough up in there, the car could catch on fire. Well, that's not so great. And in very rare circumstances, it could clog things up in such a way that carbon monoxide could begin to seep into the interior of the car. Not such a great thing to be doing after all, huh? Well, the point of me telling this story to you is a Christian without lament is like a car with its exhaust pipe clogged up. That's because lament is our God-given exhaust pipe. It's an outlet for the pressure that builds up on the human soul. So let me give you a definition today of what lament is in the simplest form possible. Lament is grief expressed to God as worship. You see, one-third of the book of Psalms is psalms of lament in their entirety. If you go into a psalm and consider just parts of it being lament, then maybe two-thirds of the psalms at least include lament on some level. More than that, God saw to it that an entire book of the Bible was devoted to lament. It is the book of Lamentations. The setting of Lamentations is the Babylonian exile. Young disciples, you'll need to write that down. Once again, you may need some help spelling that out. And if you can't figure it out or your parents can't help, that's okay. Just put it down there as best you can. The Babylonian exile. For years, the prophets had warned of this because the people of Israel had just broken his covenant over and over. They were worshiping false gods. They were performing terrible injustices to the poor. And finally, after 500 years of being God's chosen people, the warnings became reality. The kingdom of Babylon arrived. They destroyed Jerusalem. They took survivors into captivity. They left a terribly sick remnant in the city. And we can't imagine the horror. Men killed, women abused, children orphaned, left starving. And here's the complexity of the setting of the book of Lamentations. There were those who deserved this judgment. These were people like leaders or, or corrupt people who, who really were the ones at fault leading the rest of society astray. But then in the midst of this situation also, there were those who didn't necessarily deserve it as though they had contributed to it. People like children, godly people. The prophet Jeremiah himself was one who would suffer in the midst of these days, even though he did not deserve it. And one of the glimpses that is given to us comes from Psalm 137. The experience of being taken into exile brought up things like this. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, that is Jerusalem, on the willows there we hang up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. I mean, can you imagine being captured by a foreign enemy, 
taken into captivity. And as you are sitting beside a pond somewhere in the middle of nowhere, they laugh at you and say, I heard Amazing Grace is a song that you all like to sing in America as Christians. Won't you sing us that? Huh? Won't you dance around while you sing it a little bit? And so you, so much pain and angst comes up out of them that they continue on. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Man, you can only get that raw and nasty in what you're saying if you are feeling deeply, deeply the pain of an experience like this. And it's from these ashes that arises five poems of lament compiled as the book of Lamentations. And you might think that they would be a thrashing mess of just emotional outpouring, but actually they are quite organized. They are, first of all, acrostic, which means that each line begins with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet from beginning all the way to end. It also means that they are chiastic, that is, each poem builds on itself like a pyramid to chapter 3, or chapter 1 and 5 correspond, and chapter 2 and 4 correspond, and right at the top since chapter 3. And it's like God is spelling out Israel's grief from A to Z and pointing them to a specific hope in the midst of their pain. And the same is true for us as we grieve in our personal lives and in the life of our church. There is pain that comes from losses that we deserve, foolish decisions that we have made, sin that we have not heeded the warning of its consequences, and those things fall upon us and we know it. And yet also, this is true for us because we experience pain that comes from losses that we don't deserve. We don't even know why they came our way. It's just a part of of life being so hard in a particular moment or over an extended period of time. And so Lamentations has a unique message, not just for the people of Israel, but for us too. And so let us first consider together, lament as the God-given way of processing your emotion. Young disciples, you need that word, processing. I want you to turn here in your Bibles with me, or you can follow along on the screen, to the first chapter of Lamentations. This poem begins with Jerusalem personified as a widow, we'll call her Lady Zion, who is publicly grieving in the streets as if it's a funeral. I don't know if you have ever been to a funeral. In our culture, we like to dress death up quite a bit and not make it so raw. And so you may have been to a funeral in your life or or several and never experienced someone who just really lets it out. But if you've experienced someone who just really lets it out, It's pretty unforgettable. It's so rare in our context, but I remember being a child for the first time in a funeral where a a man had died way too young because of cancer, and his wife all of a sudden just lamented, just let it all come out in front of all of us. It It was unforgettable, the pain that was flowing from this woman. And I want you to listen then to the language of verse 20 and hear this similarly. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. 
First of all, I mean, look at this emotion. My stomach churns. That's not just poetic, but think of it like churning butter, you know? It's like your stomach just being pounded with the pain. My heart is wrung within me like you're, like you're straining out a, a washcloth. So much emotion. When my mother passed away, I remembered in the first week or so, there would be these moments where the grief was so overwhelming that I just couldn't breathe. I, just, I would have to force myself to start breathing breathing again. This is the kind of emotion that hits us in our pain. It's almost as though you like fill up with it, like that engine that we talked about here at the very beginning. It needs an outlet. But see, there's more than just sadness at play in our grief. Grief is like a black diamond with a hundred different facets that all reflect the same sorrow. That means it can be expressed in a lot of different ways, not just sadness, but also anger, guilt, Joy, numbness, gratitude, exhaustion, fear, anxiety, longing, envy. All these different expressions, these these different emotions can really be getting at this same core of grief. And because we are embodied souls and we can't separate the spiritual from the physical, grief affects the body. Here are some of the ways that it does that. Insomnia, can't sleep, overeating, undereating, high blood pressure, depression, aggression, panic attacks, digestive problems, emotional spending, even suicide. So we might look at this Lady Zion and be like, drama queen, gee whiz, this is that bad? But, she may be doing the very thing that will save her life by letting this out. You see, she is reaching for that which an embodied soul wants most in its pain, to be known and loved. Not to be fixed. I can't sit with a couple who's just lost a child and somehow say something that fixes the situation, brings the child back, or makes them not feel pain, loss anymore. No, no. What they need most from me in that moment to be with them, to feel their pain, to go there. Three times Lady Zion repeats this in chapter 1. She says, look, O Lord, and see. Look and see. Look, O Lord. Listen, man, it is one thing to suffer knowing that suffering has passed through the hands of a sovereign God. We believe that he's sovereign. And so when we suffer, we don't look at him and go, okay, the devil did that. God's not involved in this. No, no, we go, God is over everything. And so somehow he's involved in this coming my way. It's passed through his hands. So it's one thing to know that suffering has passed through his hands. It's another thing to be abandoned in that knowledge. There's a word for being abandoned in your pain. It's called hell. And for the Christian, however, we are never abandoned in our suffering. What we learn from Lamentations here is that God gives a sacred dignity to our suffering you see we turn our eyes away in embarrassment from the suffering of others don't we there's something about just not looking upon you just want to look away but god doesn't look away he sees us in it he goes there i think it's similar to the way that god saw hagar in genesis chapter 16 if you remember us going through that passage a few summers back there she was Literally abandoned with her son Ishmael in the wilderness. 
and she lays him under the thorns and thistles of a fallen world. And she walks away because she cannot bear to see him perish. And so, as the Lord reveals himself to her, she says what in response to his rescue? You are the God who saves. No, no, that's not what she says. You are the God who comes and fixes all my problems. No, no, that's, that's not what she says. She says, you are the God who sees me. Sees me. This is what God does for us in our pain. And it's what we need most. We're not abandoned in it. But in order to experience that, it means that we must take our emotions to God instead of away from Him. Now, this is counterintuitive for multiple reasons. One, if you're suffering as a result of His discipline, the thought naturally goes, well, then why would He welcome me with all my dramatic emotions? And if you're suffering and you don't know why, except that it's been allowed by him, the thought goes, why would I welcome him? What good does he have to do me? But the book of Lamentations counters this. I want you to turn over to chapter 2 now. Remember, the people of Jerusalem have rebelled against God for centuries, so they deserve every ounce of God's anger here. And we can identify with this, at least in the way of knowing how our sinful nature contributes to a fallen world. You may not have done anything to deserve being treated so terribly by someone you love or whatever it is that you're hurting from in these days. But you are a sinner. And the world is no less fallen because of Adam and Eve than it is because of you. So in human logic we say, Who is Israel and who are we to crawl broken into God's lap instead of whimpering in the corner where we belong? And yet listen to these words from verse 19. Arise. Cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. There's a sense here in which this may be referring to what was four night watches, which kind of gives this sense of kind of an ongoing confession of sin and need of the Lord in the midst of, of our pain. And yet it's it's followed by the image of pouring out the heart again, that full engine that needs release, then gets that release. That's the invitation. Release it all to what? To the presence of the Lord. He is there. I remember being at Red River Gorge and we were sitting beside a a group of what were probably college students and they were journaling and one of the girls said, all right, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take what I've journaled here and I'm going to release it to the universe. Now, I don't know what she journaled there. I bet it was probably something emotional and very heartfelt. But she released it to the universe? Okay. What good is that doing? You know, no, God is invitation here is release it to his presence. He's near. He's, he's, he's near to the brokenhearted. And so even as starving children pass out on the street, he's saying, come and, and pour out your pain to me. What we're talking about here is godly grief. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We go to him, not away from him. A gracious father does not say, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. No, no. He invites his child to pour out her angst over bitter circumstances to him who may have called her to them in the first place. 
So my first conclusion and application this morning is lament as your God-given way of processing your emotion. But this goes further than emotion, doesn't it? Like if you're tracking with me, you've probably already sensed in this messiness that things can get confusing. Right? If we're going to trust, this is why people just theologically say good comes from God, bad comes from the devil, and I'm not going to get into where those overlap. No, no. But we say, no, all things flow through the hands of our sovereign God. Therefore, it's messy, and sometimes it's confusing. And so this brings us to our second application from Lamentations lament as the God given way of voicing your confusion. Young disciples, you need that word, voicing. So turn turn now with me to chapter 4 of Lamentations. There the author does something that has probably the greatest potential for emotional meltdown. He compares the past with the present. Listen to these terrible words beginning in verse 7. Speaking of Jerusalem, her princes were once purer than snow, whiter than milk, but now in the present their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. More than that, he writes, the hands of once compassionate women have now in the present boiled their own children to eat them because they are starving. Listen, there is almost nothing that leads to grumbling, self-pity, and commiseration than comparing the past with the present. Think Think about this. We've all done it. We've all done it. Even young folks, we do it. When we get on our soapbox and we talk about the good old days, right? The solution to all our modern, modern problems is what? If we could just get back to the good old days. That's right, man, when things were just great. And the good Christian doesn't want to grumble. We know that the people of Israel got into huge trouble over that in the wilderness. And so, in order to avoid it, we move in the opposite direction. We overcorrect. We then don't look back at all. We refuse to let ourselves grieve. We give people a thumbs up and say, I'm doing great. We give no voice to our confusion. The theme song of our Christian life then sounds like it's coming from the Lego movie. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Come on. Everything is awesome. When you're living a dream, I'm doing great. How are you? Oh my goodness. That's not the theme song of Lamentations though, is it? The author intentionally looks back. Why? Why would he, why would he go there? I think because looking back gets at the heart of loss. As the saying goes, You don't know what you've got until it's gone. You look back and you remember what you once had. And the gaping hole in the present hurts like crazy. And it was, if it was something trivial, like it wouldn't hurt, right? If you just, if you lost uh, a a nickel, it wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt. But if it's something of, of great worth, it hurts like crazy when our when our girls are weeping over the loss of something a lot of times saying i'm just going to miss you know a grandparent so much when we're driving away and back home we say that's how you know you really love them because it hurts and you're going to miss them 
This is what grief does. And this is why we don't go there. It's too painful and we're afraid that we'll be swallowed by it. Aren't we? But the only way past grief is through it. You can't go around it. You can't ignore it. It does not leave the engine. It stays in there. And so another way that we try to go around it is by downplaying. We do this too, don't we? We compare it with the suffering of others. Yeah, I know that we lost a child, but there are those who can't even get pregnant. Yeah, I know that we're struggling financially and can't get ahead, but there are people who are starving to death. Now, it's not bad to put things into perspective and to humble ourselves a little bit, right? But we don't need to downplay our suffering by comparing it with others' greater suffering because God doesn't do this. Think about it like this. Think about a child who has just received their very first balloon and they're in awe of this. They're walking around with it. It's so cool that it floats and it moves, but all of a sudden they accidentally, what? They all pop it, they let it go. Pop it could work the same in this scenario. But it's more painful to watch it fly away. Because you think, oh, look, it's going so high. It's going to come back down in a minute. But it doesn't. It's gone. What does the child do? Oh, yeah. Cry. Fall down on the ground. Weep. Lament. Ugh. Sackcloth and ashes. The balloon is gone. And the temptation of the parent is to say what? Ah, get over it. Will get you another one. Calm down. It's just a balloon. But think of it like this. What if you, Mr. Mom or or Mr. Dad or Miss Mom, (laughs) it's dangerous in today's culture. What if you um, are walking along and someone snatches your wallet or your phone and you watch it float away and you can't get it back? What are you going to do? Weep, lament, gnashing of teeth, right? You're not going to be like, ah, your kid looks at you and goes, don't worry, Dad, we'll just get you a new one. Come on. No, no. You see, a good father doesn't measure his children's losses by his own standards, but by theirs. And this is how God cares for us in the confusion of our losses. He doesn't just try to sweep the confusion under the rug, but he gives us what we need most himself he draws near he enters the pain with us now turn over to chapter five look at how the confusion lingers even at the very end of the book the final verses verses 21 and 22 read this restore us to yourself young disciples you need that word restore O lord that we may be restored you need that again young disciples renew our days as of old unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Dot, dot, dot. That's how the book ends. (laughs) Like, this doesn't exactly tie a bow on the author's grief, does it? And that's not the purpose of lament anyways. You see, I often hear Christians share with me about their pain, the struggle that they're going through in their life that is real But then they quickly follow it with things like, but I'm doing well. But God has been so kind. But everything happens for a reason. And I'm just thinking, nice bow. 
you tied that really well. And I understand and I appreciate that this is our way of expressing faith. That we are not giving up on God even in the midst of our pain. But lament says that uncertainty directed to God is not mutually exclusive from faith. And may even be the more hard-wrung expression of it. I'll let you sit on that one for a second. Because there's some depth there. Suffering in silence and seeking to tie a bow is not a virtue in lamentations. The invitation is to hold nothing back. Anger, confusion, despair as a gritty conviction that God can handle it without rejecting us. In good company do we cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you hear the pain in that phrase? What about the protest? In that phrase. And this is precisely what our third application is about. Lament as the God-given way of protesting your pain. Young disciples, you need that word, protesting. So here we arrive at what is the crown jewel of lamentations. The the top of the pyramid, chapter 3. And this chapter once again personifies Israel. And this time as a lonely, broken man. And I would invite you to think of it in this way. As God draws near to us in our grief, there is a broken woman personified and a broken man personified, meaning that God is drawing near to all humanity in our pain, especially his beloved children. So picture this man standing outside the courts of heaven with, of all things, a picket sign. And here are some of the things that are written on it. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He's talking about the Lord, to the Lord. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. And so I say, but the Lord has been so kind. No, my endurance has perished for this. And so has my hope from the Lord. And so brings forth a theme that runs through the most climactic verses of the book. Hope. The man's lament has been so raw that he admits my my hope, my expectation that anything good could come from the Lord is long gone. Listen, I think we have completely lost any understanding or practice of the Christian discipline of lament. I think that when I hear people talking about their usage of it, the posture of lament that it sounds like they're describing is like this. Hey God, I'm hurting down here. Hey, I'm hurting down here. And I think biblical lament as a posture looks more like this. Why? Why, God, have you forsaken me? Or to put it another way, I think the language of lament that I often hear Christians expressing is like, what's the fuss? What's, what's the fuss about this? I know it's bad, but you know, I, I, the Lord has been so good to me. What's the fuss? And I think the true biblical language of lament is more like, what the is going on? 
Why in the world is this continuing to come my way? Why at Antioch Church does it just be one thing right after another? People out the door, out the door, out the door. Why? It's not fair, God. Why do I see other churches and they're overflowing? They're trying to figure out what to do. Move to two services. We're struggle busing nonstop. Why, God? I think that is biblical lament because it's real and it's taken to our Father instead of taken away from Him. And yet, here is the seedbed of hope. The author is utterly convinced that God is committed to his justice. God will bring justice. He does not let anything slide. And we think of that as, man, well, he's mean, he's bad. No, no. Logically, it runs in this parallel. If God is committed to his justice, then he is utterly committed to his faithfulness. He is consistent. Look at this reasoning in verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. We hit this verse recently when we were talking about Moses and its other potential translation. Because of the Lord's love, we are not consumed. His mercies never come to an end. You want to see a tangible example of why? They are new every morning when the sun comes up. He is faithful. He is faithful. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. Still, even though all this I'm going through, I'm still going to inherit him, says my soul. Therefore, I will, there it is again, hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait patiently for him, to the soul who seeks him in the midst of all that they're going through. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Why? Because it will come. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. What is that talking about? It gives this idea of discipline that you receive when you're young and stubborn and need it so much. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. That's a picture of resignation to the will of God. Let him put his mouth in the dust. That is complete submission. There may yet be what? Hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. And let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion. According to the abundance of his steadfast love. And here is the literary center of the entire book of Lamentations by design. Lamentations 3.33 For he does not afflict from his heart. Or grieve the children of men. The exact literary center of the book. The full summary of its message. Right here. Yes, God does afflict. But no, he does not do it from his heart. I was reminded by my wife of how beautifully this truth was addressed in the book. Gentle and lowly. It's worth quoting here at length, and so I'll do so. Here in Lamentations, writes Dane Ortland, the Bible is taking us deep into God himself. The one who rules and ordains all things brings affliction into our lives with a certain divine reluctance. He is not reluctant about the ultimate good that is going to be brought about through that pain. That indeed is why he is doing it. But something recoils within him in sending that affliction. 
The pain itself does not reflect his heart. Let me read that again for those of you in pain. The pain itself does not reflect his heart. He is not a platonic force pulling heaven's levers and pulleys in a way that is detached from the real pain and anguish that we feel at his hand. Orland goes on to quote Thomas Goodwin, who points out this. While Lamentations 3.33 says that when sending affliction, God does not do it from his heart, Jeremiah 32.41 says that when showing mercy, God does it with his whole heart and with his whole soul. Here is the seedbed of hope in the midst of our pain. He does not send affliction from his heart. What he sends from his whole heart is mercy. It's who he is. And we can know that to be true. Not simply because it's tucked away in an obscure book of the Old Testament, but because it points to the crown jewel, the top of the pyramid of the entire Bible. You see, when Jesus Christ came into the world, he was the only human without a sinful nature contributing to a fallen world. And as God in the flesh, he deserved zero ounces of God's anger and judgment. If anything... He deserved to be the ultimate Babylon, the rod of God's wrath against sin, against sinners like you and I. But instead, all our years of covenant breaking, of stubbornness, of worshiping false gods, of doing injustice, all that was then put upon him. Y'all, when we look to the cross, what we're seeing is God's grief for sin spelled out from A to Z. And we can't imagine the horror of it. It was literally a funeral in the streets. A bloody mess. He is the one who could say more than anyone. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. I am the young man who has carried the yoke of discipline. Who has stood alone in silence. Resigned to God's will. Who has laid with his mouth in the dust in complete submission. He can say, I have given my cheek to the one who strikes, literally. I have been filled with insults, literally. And then, what does he cry from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is lament, y'all. Grief expressed to God as worship. And now we might be like, geez, drama queen, Jesus. You know you're not forsaken. You know you're the son of God. You know you're going to be resurrected in three days. You wrote this whole plan. Why in the world are you crying out as if you are forsaken? We know you're not. But he's calling out the very thing an embodied soul longs for most in their pain. To be known and loved. He's taking our place. He's taking his emotions to God instead of away from him. He's voicing his confusion. He's protesting his pain. This is getting at the heart of all loss right here. And there is no bow tied on the cross. Like Jesus, he doesn't like wave at the Father. Hey, it's it's kind of hurting a little bit. He doesn't come down from the cross and say, what's the fuss? No big deal. His lament is a hard-wrung expression of faith to the very end. But don't take it as a loss of all hope. 
God did see Jesus and did not abandon him to hell. Instead, we read, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And though he was not saved from death, he was heard because of his reverence. This was Jesus, therefore I have hope. That the Father did not afflict or grieve Jesus from his heart, but what came from his whole heart and his whole soul was showing mercy, which meant raising Jesus from the dead. So that he could do the same for you, those of you who see Jesus in your place, the one who didn't deserve judgment for the ones who did. This is why God doesn't just measure our losses according to his standard, but ours, because he has already lost everything in our place. His engine of grief has been filled up and poured out already in full. Because of Jesus, the Christian is not, never will be, a pine cone who clogs up God's exhaust pipe and needs to be removed. We are welcomed into the interior of a vehicle that will carry us perfectly forever, the person of Jesus Christ. And so what is my application from all of that? Again, it's just one word, church. Lament. In your personal life and losses, no matter how big or small, use your God-given exhaust pipe as an expression of worship. I don't know what it looks like exactly for you, but for me, sometimes it looks like going on a walk that leads somewhere into the woods where there's probably nobody else so that I can pour out my heart and lament to my Heavenly Father and let it get as ugly as it needs to get. Sometimes it's looked like sitting on the dock of a lake where nobody else is around and I put an empty chair beside me and I imagine that Jesus is sitting in that chair and I just tell him all that's in my heart instead of holding it in. Because it will seep out but it'll seep out in ways that are not beneficial to you or to other people. So let it, let it have its release as you need that in your personal life. And then also, in the face of the many losses that we have and are experiencing as a church, I would invite you to join me in going to God to process our emotion, to voice our confusion, and to protest our pain as we hold on white knuckle to the hope that we have in our God who will save, who will restore, who will set us free forever. And now we come to what is the literary middle of our gathering, the summary of its entire message. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took a cup of wine and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant. Covenant that was broken, I have now restored. New covenant in the shedding of that which can never be broken or changed. My blood. As often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. 
Today, church, we're going to announce this together. This we call to mind, and therefore we have hope. In Jesus Christ, we see the whole heart of God. This is his heart toward you, church, right here as a memorial until the day that he serves the wedding supper of the Lamb to you face to face. Our invitation here at Antioch is to come forward if you're a baptized believer, whether or not you're a member of this congregation. Break off a piece of bread and to dip it into the juice. Taking it, remembering what Christ has done for you, and also proclaiming what he has promised to do upon his return. There'll be gluten-free available over on this side if you need that. If you're here today and you're not yet baptized, but you are believing in Jesus, hey, come and talk to us so that we can help you take that first step of obedience. If you're here today and you're not a baptized believer at all, like the hope that we've talked about here is not yours. Like we would be foolish to pretend like it is. So instead of coming and taking this, take Christ so you can have that same hope that all of us are holding on to and need so desperately in the midst of the pain of our lives. There'll be people in the back to pray with anyone who has any need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bow our hearts before you. We feel the heaviness of having acknowledged before you even just the idea of loss and grief and lament and pain, confusion, Lord, it's so much easier in the context of the local church to just come in and, and promote excitement. And Lord, we need that. That is good and right. We should truly be excited before you. And yet also, it's important for us to be able to come in the fullness of our lives, in the honesty of our souls, and bring before you our aches and pains, knowing that because of Christ, we are welcomed by you, our Father, And that you enter into those pains with us. Lord, as I have alluded to earlier, there are many losses that we have watched people experience in this congregation that have no sense of explanation. And there are also many losses that we have experienced in this congregation because of sin and rebellion against you. Um, And Lord, our hearts grieve this. And we ask you for mercy, we ask you for your presence, we ask you to help us learn once again what it means to trust in you so deeply that we would come to you with our pain instead of stuffing it down and running away. And so Lord, in this moment as we reflect upon the loss that you experienced on our behalf, may we come not with shame, but with the reminder of your love and affirmation for us. You saying, you know what? You are worth it. All that loss that I experienced, what I am saying to you in it is that you were worth it to me. Thank you so much for loving us that way. Your steadfast love never ceases. It is our hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.